Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lift As We Climb podcast with me, Kaylin Grace Apple, also known on YouTube and Instagram as the Redhead Academic. The Lift As We Climb podcast is all about breaking barriers, discovering how to strive for and redefine success, as well as how we can support others in their journeys as well. Here, we always remind our listeners to lift as we climb. I wanted to quickly check in and apologize for the hiatus on this podcast and for not posting episodes over the last several weeks. I have been focusing on my dissertation and completing my master's at Oxford. I made a huge road trip across the country of 2.6 thousand miles to move from California to New Haven, Connecticut and prepare to begin my PhD. In addition to that, I've been working on building up my YouTube channel and my consulting business. So my podcast has been left to the wayside a bit, but I'm picking it back up and I'm very excited for this episode today. And in addition to that, at the end of the episode, there's going to be a rather large announcement. So make sure you listen to the end. And I also wanted to shout out the reviewer of the week before I go ahead and introduce our guest today. So today's reviewer of the week is The Vintage Academic, and the title of the review is Inspiring and Motivating. She says, Kaylin's dedication and passion to academia, access to education, and supporting others through her work is ceaselessly inspiring. I love listening to this podcast because it's not only interesting to hear Kaylin's journey, but it also gives a listener a chance to discover other people doing important work in the world. I always look forward to a new episode. Thank you so much to the Vintage Academic for your review. If you would like to be featured in the next episode as the reviewer of the week, then go ahead and head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating as well as a review, and then go ahead and send me a screenshot once you do to my Instagram to shoot me a DM, and I will personally thank you. And in today's episode, I interviewed one of my best friends, Chloe Landis, a recent graduate from UCLA with a bachelor's and master's in art history and Egyptology. Chloe competed as a figure skater and worked as a coach for 15 years before transferring from her local community college to study at UCLA and pursue her goals of entering a career in arts education. Chloe's personal journey is one that I believe will resonate with many of you, and I hope that you enjoy getting to hear a bit about her personal and academic story. So without further ado, I want to go ahead and get into this episode. Hello, Chloe. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to let you guys know that in today's episode, it's going to be a little bit more casual. Chloe and I are going to keep this nice and conversational. Chloe and I have known each other for a very long time. We went to UCLA together and we have been roommates and best friends for since we've known each other. So today's episode is going to be a little bit more casual, but let us know how you guys like it. And at the end, stick around because we have a bit of an announcement for you all. So to begin, we're going to start with the segment I call past, present, and purpose. So to the first question is, who from the past has inspired you and how has their legacy played a role in your personal and professional life? So it was really hard to find someone because I, I feel like there are so many people, but currently... I guess she counts. Um, she's still alive, but the first person I would say is Adrienne Piper. She is an artist and a professor of philosophy. She is an Immanuel Kant scholar. So when I first learned about her, I thought, 
hmm, I, I don't quite know about this, but they had an exhibition of her work at the Hammer Museum when I worked there, and her work discusses race and gender and incorporates a lot of philosophy in it, and she is super inspirational to me because her work is the best way I can explain it is confrontational and it was that show that really changed my perspective on contemporary art how it can be an act of social justice um one work in particular that really inspired me was a work called decide who you are and it was a I remember us having a long discussion about this, Kaylin, when we saw it, but it was a series where there was a young picture of a young Anita Hill and over it was overlaid text and read of everything Piper herself had been told as a woman in the professional world of, you know, you're, you're making too much of this or mm, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't have said X, Y, Z. And it just covers this face of this young girl and it was six months after the Kavanaugh hearings when um, this work was shown at the Hammer. And it was through Piper's work that I really dug in deep into questions that were coming up in my own life. And honestly, I think she was a big, big part of that. So she's the first person that has inspired me. I definitely, I remember that exhibit and that was one of the first times that Chloe had actually given me a proper tour of an art museum and Chloe and I kind of contrast one another because I'm more on the humanities and social science side of academia, whereas Chloe is more ingrained in the arts and we'll kind of get into that throughout this episode. Um, But I, I do remember going and seeing that exhibit and especially the Anita Hill piece in particular. And if you guys have seen, or sorry, if you guys have listened to the welcome episode of this podcast, the first episode, I actually talked about Anita Hill. So if you guys have heard that one, then you know how much of an impact Anita Hill has played in my life. So um, I appreciate you kind of helping illustrate that particular piece for us all. So who would you say inspires you today? So many people, you being one of them, but... Someone who I think in the past few years has really inspired me is Kara Cooney. Um, she happened to be my undergrad advisor, but she, I'm not saying this because she was my undergrad advisor, but she is an Egyptologist and a professor at UCLA. But what really inspires me about Kara is she has her scholarly work, her academic work, where she works on coffins, but she also writes books for popular audiences. And she goes on her Facebook and does Facebook Lives and talks about ancient Egypt in relation to the present and themes that you can see and how it can relate to the present. And she wrote an entire book about women in power in the ancient world and how queens of ancient Egypt, how we can understand them in the context of the 21st century. And I think her willingness to break away from that academic audience into public light and work with Nat Geo and go on tours and things like that is so inspirational, especially because Egyptology and academia is so exclusive. You have to know French, German, 
in addition to English, some Italian, and then you have to know four phases of a dead language to get your PhD in Egyptology. And it's so hard to enter in and her willingness to bridge the gap and make this accessible resource that anyone can read and enjoy and get great knowledge from. I just find that to be so inspirational and something that I want to take more of in my own work. Um, and she's just really funny. And I think anytime an academic can like loosen up a little bit is also just really fun and cool. So just a funny story. I remember back when Chloe actually discovered that she was going to be able to work with Kara and she I have a video still on my phone and we were in the dorms and Chloe was just beside herself. She was so excited that she got to meet Kara and she had a meeting with her and as you guys get to know me and Chloe a bit better you start to realize that we are very emotional people. We we cry when we're excited. We cry when we're sad, etc. And I remember Chloe just in tears, just so excited that she was going to get to work with Kara. And I think what's just so cool about the UCLA experience that we had, and we can kind of go into this later, is that we got to work with the the people that we came to work with and that we always saw as kind of these these monoliths of of academic scholars and you kind of get to know them and you see the aims of their work being more than just scholarly and I think that I, I know for me that's one of the biggest more and most important aspects of being an academic is having some responsibility to public knowledge absolutely absolutely so. and that willingness to do that right and not just that it's an obligation, but something that you're excited to do. Um, as I definitely Absolutely. feel that is not the attitude of all academics, that willingness. No, I think, I think that it, to my, to my understanding, this is a relatively new shift in scholarly work and this feeling of public responsibility and kind of a willingness and an excitement to actually reach a public audience. I think that that's something that I don't, I don't see from the early scholars of my peer of my particular subfield and time period. But I see a lot of newer scholars kind of coming to the forefront. You see the scholars that have probably just been tenured and you see them really reaching out into the public sphere more so. Um, so I think that that's one thing that I appreciate about Kara being kind of that kind of an early trendsetter in that way, because you don't see it as much. And I think that she's one of the first that at least that I can pinpoint that really made that a mission Absolutely. early on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, with with my field of Egyptology or your field, there are so many misconceptions about um, certain things. Like in my case, ancient aliens is on TV talking about aliens building the pyramids. And, you know, when you have, when you don't have access to 
actual information, you know, facts that we actually have names of people who built the pyramids and you don't have people talking about that, they, it allows for those really problematic narratives to get pushed to the forefront. So really there is not just a responsibility because it's, we're responsible for making sure everyone has knowledge, but certain fields have an extra responsibility to make sure that the information being dis- disseminated is, you know, not uh, deeply, deeply problematic. Yeah. And I think it's also, I, I think a lot of this kind of responsibility to public knowledge is also in response to a lot of kind of political turmoil on a global and, and national scale. Um, but I wanted to ask this next question now that we've taken a nice little tangent. Um, As we do. So what would you, of course. So what would you say is your why? Like, what is your, your driving purpose? Um, it's a good question. I've been really digging into this as I'm in a kind of pivot, post-grad pivoting directions point in my life. But I think it boils down to, I have been so lucky and blessed to have been given opportunities to grow as an employee, as a scholar, and have been given information and It is my duty, I feel, to share what I have been given, whether that's knowledge or resources. You know, you can take that very broadly of, you know, telling everyone, I just learned from the Career Center not to use Times New Roman Roman on a resume. Like, really simple. It breaks my little academic heart. But, you know, things like that, whatever it should be, that I have had a lot of privilege in many ways and that I feel it is my responsibility to continue to share that through YouTube, through conversations I have, but just share knowledge. And then just, honestly, I feel we have a short time on this planet and I want my impact to kind of go to like a points-based system to just increase. I, I just try to create as much good as possible, whether through small acts, through my relationships, through conversations, um, kind of vague, but. (laughs) No, I think that that's, I think it's important. And I think that also connecting to that, to, to platforms such as podcasts or YouTube, using the mediums that we have been given in our generation and using that for public knowledge and assisting other people and kind of providing information not just to our close circle and I think also there's a there's a bit of I I keep talking about these these shifts that I'm seeing but I I see for example with YouTube and this could also be applied to academia but I'm going to use YouTube as an example there was a time when people would not share how much money they made on AdSense. They wouldn't share information related to their income or their strategies for growing on YouTube. And the the information about how to grow and how to gain access to, to certain privileges, to certain positions of, 
of power, then all of a sudden, for some reason, it, it became very secretive of how they actually got there. And I remember the first time I really started digging into YouTube in particular I was watching a video and I can't remember who it was, but it was the first time I'd ever seen someone actually post their GPA, like a low GPA and talked about how they managed to improve their grades because I was so used to watching YouTube videos about like study tips and whatnot, but they were coming from people that had pretty decent study habits Mm -hmm. from the get go. Like their parents had raised them in an environment where they always had good study tactics. And I think what really changed my mind about YouTube as a platform is seeing people start to use it as a way to provide more information and to actually provide for public knowledge. Cause actually I think that one, they end up reaching more people, mm-hmm. but two, they end up helping more people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know, I know we're going to talk about being a transfer and some of those things, but when I first came into UCLA and I'd hear people and they'd say, Oh, I'm double majoring in this and I'm work two jobs and I'm doing all this research and blah, 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 blah. I, thought I can't do that I have this I started off my first quarter with a 3.5 GPA which is by no means terrible but it wasn't my standard and I didn't think I could handle all these things and massive imposter syndrome and well they just have something I don't and no it was just you're hearing half of the story and if they're working two jobs maybe they're only working one like four hours a week versus, you know, mm-hmm. a full 20, which is what part-time was at UCLA. So yeah, that like really honest what's going on is so important. Yeah. And I think that that's what I want to be able to to demonstrate with the podcast and whatnot. And I think what's also important about talking to you and, and providing this interview at a time when you're pivoting rather than only showing moments where you're at your peak because what I've actually found through starting this podcast and kind of starting my YouTube channel and whatnot is that these people that we look up to mentors colleagues we we look up to them and we say like oh I can't I, I don't know how they got to where they are and oftentimes you're looking at them on the outside but what they're experiencing on the inside is I don't know what's next. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit today. But before we kind of get into like all the nitty gritty, I wanted to give you a chance to kind of give an overview about yourself, talk about where you grew up, your kind of professional and academic experiences. And this is kind of the the place for you to kind of just tell your life story, (laughs) essentially. So... For context, I was a military brat, um, moved around when I was little a lot, um, but I lived in D.C. for a few years, and growing up there, um, going to the museums, I fell in love with the arts, and my mom was really into the arts, and she played the flute, and always took, um, took me to museums, and so that's really where my passion started to form. I basically have grown up in California outside of LA since I was seven. So I am an LA girl. Uh, I absolutely love this city. 
Um, but I was also a competitive figure skater. I started when I was seven. I competed until I was 14 and then got injured and then worked as a coach, worked teaching group classes and helping with run summer camps and working in the office. And I did that until I was 22 when I transferred to UCLA. Um, so being a skater and being an athlete, even though I wasn't necessarily super high level, that mindset massively, massively impacted my work ethic, who I am. And it kind of intersected with my passion for the arts because I was a creative, I loved performing, I loved choreographing and getting a new program and getting to play around with the choreographer, making up and crafting a story. Um, so I've always been kind of a, I call myself like a structured creative. Um, Kaylin and I are very similar that we both are planners and we're goal oriented and we love a good to-do list, um, but also very creative in our own ways. So that's definitely, I think, what shaped my interest and how I kind of ended up interested in teaching because of coaching. I'm interested in education and outreach and also breaking down very inaccessible things like figure skating, but then also have this really creative side to me as well. So the next question is, uh, what drew you to the study of ancient Egypt in particular? And how does that connect with your personal and professional aspirations? So it's so funny being asked this because I can't quite answer it. I don't know why I was drawn to ancient Egypt. Um, it's a hard it's question. It's a really hard question. I think whenever... Yeah, and... Whenever somebody asks you what, why you study what you study, there's there's like a long answer, and then there's a, I just find it interesting. Yeah, and I, Kara always jokes, never write you loved Egypt since you were a kid on an application because all Egyptologists were the weirdos who just never grew out of their Egypt phase. But it started really when I was in third grade. The King Tut exhibit came to LACMA, the LA County Museum of Art. And I fell in love. I was obsessed. I just couldn't believe that this was sitting in the middle of a desert, you know, that they found this. I was so captivated in seeing through these objects, learning about this culture and his life. And I named my dog Anubis because he looked like a jackal. He was a Doberman. I mean, I was that weirdo in third grade. Like, people ask what his name was, and I say, his name's Anubis, and they just look at me with blank stares. And I just never grew out of it. And I actually came into UCLA just as an art history major. And I, when I was trying to find my focus, I decided I wanted to do Egyptian art. And I, I it was one of those moments where I was kind of at a crossroads. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went back and I thought, what have I always loved? And it was Egyptian art. And I realized you can't just study Egyptian art. You have to take it as a holistic thing. You have to study the culture as a whole. So I decided to double major. And when I initially started double major and went on to 
complete my master's in it, I wanted to be a curator of Egyptian art and architecture, um, work in a museum ever since going to LACMA, I said I wanted to be an archaeologist. And my mom said, Chloe, you hate the heat, you hate dirt, and you hate bugs. I don't think that would be a good job for you. And I said, okay, so so what can I do inside that I can see all these things all the time? And she said, well, you could work in a museum. And in third grade, I decided I wanted to be a museum curator. It was always kind of the, the dream job. Um, but I'm pivoting. I'm at a moment of pivot where I've decided what I, I love research, don't get me wrong, like I can read about this stuff all day long, but I decided for me what was more important than working in curatorial and doing research on the objects is bridging the gap between the public and those objects, especially Egyptian collections have a horrible colonial history and they're the way objects are presented or discussed in museums can be very problematic and I feel for such an exclusive field that it is more important to me to help be an educator and help make that information more accessible to the broad public um so it's it's kind of been a shift but it definitely the more I studied it, the more I was passionate about sharing it than researching it. Though I could talk about my research all day, every day, if given the chance. Of course. <laughs> so the next question I wanted to ask was why you chose to study at UCLA specifically. And I know this question is one that you get asked a lot and one that you address in your, your YouTube videos and whatnot. But I think what's interesting about when people talk about why they made certain decisions is that you see that as a moment of pivot. And so I'm just curious why specifically UCLA. So UCLA was kind of the dream, just to put that out there. Being living in LA, growing up in LA, UCLA was just the dream school. But once I actually got in and was looking into the program, when I was trying to decide between other schools, the transfer community was a huge part of it. They guarantee housing to transfers for one year. And I, coming from community college, I really wanted to have that experience. And I'm so glad I did because I met you. But it was also program and location. So initially coming in just as an art history major, there, the Getty is right across from LACMA, so many of our faculty are connected to Getty and LACMA. And then not to mention that we have the Fowler Museum on campus and then the Hammer Museum. So Fowler being our anthropology museum and Hammer Contemporary Art Museum. And all of those have a massive amount of student involvement. Um, all of the frontline staff that you see when you walk through the doors, any tours you have are all given by UCLA students. And so that was really appealing to me coming in because I knew I wanted to work in museums and more than any other school, UCLA provided that in very close proximity to campus. And then UCLA also 
has one of the few Egyptology undergrad courses or programs in the United States. So it's actually ancient Near East in Egyptology and most programs in the U.S. just offer a few courses on Egyptology and I know coming into UCLA the breadth of classes they offered that I could dabble in other you know subject matter that I would have a really broad but deep deep education and I mean you just don't beat the faculty I mean they're so phenomenal and then it's gorgeous like campus is gorgeous the first time I went on Bruin Day it's like 7 a.m and it was like golden hour and just so stunning that red brick and then also the food I mean this is why I love LA the food is just so good on like a very shallow note (laughs) yes the food was definitely a plus of living in LA for sure and what drew you away from doing a PhD in particular and the reason I ask this is I have a lot of viewers or listeners that have follow me and I'm doing the I'm going down the path of starting a PhD and I think what's important and something I tell everyone is that you should only do a PhD if it's absolutely right for you so what was the thing that actually taught like what was the gut feeling that it wasn't right for you yeah (laughs) so for context I spent a third year at UCLA getting my master's degree And going into that, I was told to apply for PhDs then, and I did not feel ready to, and I just felt something isn't right. And I knew I wanted to do something very specific. I wanted to do Egyptology, but a focus on art so I could have the experience if I could work in any art museum if I wanted to, not just be marketable as an Egyptologist. And there are very few programs in the U.S. that offer that. And when it came to that first year of the possibility of applying, it just, it did not feel right. And I said, okay, I'm going to wait a year and I'll, I'll do a gap year. So I'll apply the fall after I graduate. And the more I thought about it, I kept thinking, but I love the education aspect of my work. I worked at, I don't think I mentioned this, I worked at the Hammer Museum as a student educator for two years and giving tours and working with the public in that sense. And it was one of my favorite things I did at UCLA. And so I had these two fighting sides. I I loved my research and I had a project in mind that I could do for a PhD. But I really loved the other, the museum, that museum education. And so I was wrestling with the two and thinking, okay, what is my end goal? Do I want to be a museum educator or do I want to be a curator? Because getting a PhD in Egyptology, that will not get me the museum educator role. So what am I more passionate about? And honestly, it was taking coursework and seeing what the coursework would be if I was in a PhD program that I love the I love the field, but I just could not say I could devote six years to it. And it didn't seem, when I looked at my career path, 
that looking down the road, spending six years on that degree would pay off, that it would get me the job I wanted. And honestly, it was COVID that helped clarify things that when all the museum was closed within the first like month, everyone was asking for, you know, how are museums engaging the public now that their doors are closed? And educators, that was really where they were shining. It was educators and communications departments, not really curatorial. And at the Hammer, we were doing, we like transitioned to virtual work so seamlessly. And we were doing virtual Zoom tours and I was able to work with the Alzheimer's Association and do tours, which was really meaningful to me because I have a grandfather with Alzheimer's. And we were making Pinterest activities for families and seeing how people loved that and seeing that it made a difference. And then fast forward to the end of May and early June when it seemed like our world exploded with the George Floyd protests, you know, the protests over George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Maude Aubrey, you saw how the educators really took that role seriously and how museums play into the history of problematic institutions as museums are and how it just felt that was more important and I would do more of a I would play a bigger role if I was in an education department than studying, you know, whatever I was studying. And my work felt very obsolete in the scheme of everything. And I realized my heart just was not in it. And so I'm pivoting to, ironically, what has always been kind of at the core of everything I've done in the past I don't know, since I was 16, (laughs) education. (laughs) Well, I think what's so interesting is I remember, so Chloe and I met the first week that we had moved into the dorms at UCLA. We were both transfer students. And I specifically remember talking to you about your career goals. And I remember specifically you said, I don't want to do curatorial. Like, it's so isolating. I don't want to do the research. I want to be in education. And... On the flip side, I remember talking to you when I said, I want to go to law school. I I want to do this. And you were like, you're going to do a PhD. <laughs> and I just think it's funny how we somehow wind up back to what our God told us all along. And while I still plan on going to law school, I also was very much interested in doing the research. And so I think what's interesting about that story in particular and meeting one another and having this kind of innate feeling about where we were going to end up. I think it's interesting that we kind of sway away from that, but we always kind of wind up back on the path we were meant to be on. Or you pivot and you end up somewhere completely different. But I think in the case, in our case in particular, it's just interesting to see that we ended up kind of back where where we thought we would be. Yeah, and the irony is when I came into UCLA, I did not think I was a researcher. I thought I was more of like a model employee. I thought I was more of a doer than a researcher. And then I ended up doing research and fell in love with it and was totally confused. But it's so funny how we say like, nope, that is not me. And then you 
you stop, you realize, oh wait, I have way more facets to my being than what I thought, but still like our core kind of has always remained the same. Our core values, I guess you could say. So how do you think your time at UCLA has prepared you for the future, whatever that future may be? Um, it's given me a great network for one, but I think, especially as a transfer, um, this may sound a little problematic, but I feel like you are on your own a lot more as a transfer than as a freshman that you have to learn how to seek things out and ask for help. That was the number one thing I learned through my time is how do I reach out to people and network for one, but just how do I find resources? Who are the people I need to find to do this? And being at a pretty big university, there are a lot of people there, but it taught me how to find my people and in in both mm-hmm. in the, you know, academic networking sense, but just in my people in the dorms. I mean, Kaylin and I still have Zoom Zoom dates with people from our floor. We're so close and I think the UCLA is a very special place. Kayla and I always joke about it being kind of like Disneyland um, for such nerds, but we we just love it so much. But it's true, and we, we found our people there, and I think the university experience also facilitates that wherever you are, um, in the U.S. at least more so. But UCLA, that Bruin spirit, that school spirit runs deep. And I think it makes for a very special environment. And it's hard. They'll, they'll work you hard. And I feel like my research skills, my writing skills, my public speaking skills, um, I was forced into doing that a lot, are all skills that are transferable to any field. Absolutely. And I think it's just funny that you say the rigor of the program at UCLA as I definitely had a very rigorous experience in the history department. But I think what's also really interesting about UCLA is like, yes, you, you say like Bruin spirit. And I remember just feeling just so sad once I left because I was like, oh, I'm no longer a Bruin. But I think what's interesting about UCLA and the environment, especially as a transfer, And I think, I mean, I don't have the freshman experience, so I don't know how people kind of experience UCLA, but our time was limited. We had to make the absolute most of it. And I think that because the coursework was so rigorous, because we had such a limited timeline and because we were all coming from very different backgrounds, whereas as a freshman, you're coming in right after senior year. You're all kind of the same age. You're coming from similar teenage experiences. Whereas transfer students, I mean, we ranged in ages. Like there were people that were in their 30s. There were people that were 19. There was, I mean, we were both 22 at the time. And 
for us, we had had a whole career before then. We had actually worked as athletes. And so I think what's interesting about that environment is that it's a high stress environment because of the academic rigor, but the transfer community and the feeling of the lack of time kind of forces people to come together or to to lash out at each other, depending on who you are. But but ultimately, I, th- I think it really created the sense of camaraderie that I don't think I would have gotten at another school. And I think that's what the UCLA transfer community really did for me. Absolutely. And would you Absolutely. agree? Absolutely. And I think, I don't want to say this across the board, but I, because I don't know that many freshmen, but I feel like transfer students, because we know the transfer experience, seem to be so willing to help any new transfer on the just percentage of transfers willing to help out just seems to be higher than your average student just because we know how hard it is to make it in that imposter syndrome is real real and we know how it hard it is to assimilate very quickly and feel like you have to catch up and I feel like the transfers are at UCLA just I've always felt like I knew who I could go to if I needed help from a student perspective you know how did you make it work how did you do it and there was always someone willing to talk I mean the Facebook the UCLA transfer Facebook group was oh yeah an amazing resource Absolutely. And I think it still is. Like, I'm still part of that transfer network. And now I believe Heather Adams, who used to run the Transfer Center, has started this page called Transfer Nation, Mm -hmm. which is supposed to be connecting transfer students from other universities as well. And I think it's just such an interesting and creative resource that I don't, I don't think I would have thought up. And also, I had the experience of applying to schools outside of California, And when I got into places like University of Connecticut, they had no transfer community. It was it was that you were going to get your class schedule and you're just going to get thrown into the mix. Whereas UCLA really made a point of they gave us a separate Bruin day. They gave us a separate orientation. We really got to have a very separate experience. And I think that. There's negatives to that as well. I think the transfer community, sometimes one of the criticisms is that it is separate from the freshmen, mm-hmm. the the class that came in as freshmen. But I don't know. I think the transfer community kind of creates its own, its own, it, it creates this kind of centrifugal, like, force. Yeah. <laughs> Where you're you're brought together with other transfers, whether you lived in the housing or not. I felt like I kept running into transfers in my classes and feeling like there was some kind of sense of familiarity. Yeah, I can say that 90, like 90% of my friends outside, like tr- friends that I met outside of the dorms were all transfers. That they're, we just find yeah. each other. And what's so incredible is I remember the first day of class, fall quarter, 
Um, my second year, I was in a 60 to 80 person lecture hall and the professor asked how many are transfers and it was over half the class. And just to have that community and know everyone was freaking out, not knowing where things were, but they weren't freshmen and saying, okay, look at everyone who's going through this too with me. Okay. That was really great. UCLA is something special, I gotta say. Absolutely. So, given the state of arts programming mm-hmm. and museums, I I want to talk a little bit about how you're adjusting in the in this particular climate. And I know it can seem a little daunting at times, but in addition to discussing the state of arts education programming. How do you kind of hope to contribute, whether that's in the traditional sense as an arts educator, or are there other creative ways that you and and other future arts educators can have an impact on that programming without necessarily taking the traditional path as an arts educator? That's a really good question. So right now, what has been so cool seeing museums and galleries and other institutions responding to being closed is there has been this increase in online programming increase in virtual tours the hammer is doing zoom tours for example or we we're all doing projects creating art projects that families can do at home based off of art projects using things around their home that aren't even art supplies like grab a paper plate or grab a plate and go on a walk and use things from outside. Things like that that anyone has access to. Anyone, whether you're in New York or Kansas or Texas or Oregon, you don't have to be in LA. You can experience museums outside of that. Um, My personal favorite, I'm just going to throw this out there, uh, the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas, brought penguins into their museum and there's a video of them running around just things like that people are getting so creative with that which is really great because now since their doors are closed they're they're not focusing on the audience inside their four walls and that means people who would never have the opportunity to see certain art to learn about a certain artist that's only shown in a few galleries they have access to that. But on the other side, seeing with especially the Black Lives Matter movement, seeing the inequalities being surfaced, that overwhelmingly museums are have a colonial history, they are white, privileged, extremely privileged spaces, and there are a lot of inequalities in hierarchy and I think what this moment has shown is it's really highlighting that great Instagram account is called um, it, it's uh, Change the Art Museum, I believe is the name of it. I'll give you the title so you can put it in the show notes, but it's all people anonymously sharing their experiences. And what I think this is going to do is drastically change how especially education is done within these museums in these spaces how do we make these spaces more equitable and right now 
I feel it's my responsibility to listen to the educators and artists who have not been listened to in these spaces and highlight their voices, whether it's sharing it on Instagram, maybe I'll make a YouTube video about it, but really listen to what are the problems that people have just been putting under the rug. And I think also increasing informal education um, outside of the four walls of a gallery, I think is so important for everyone, but especially for the people who just financially cannot access it. And arts, I think of as a social justice tool and as a social emotional learning tool. And I mean, art therapy is great, but you can have the same experience talking about a painting. I've seen it happen in the galleries. And I think everyone should be able to experience that. And if that means putting something out on YouTube that may not be taken as seriously by the establishment, I'm putting that in quotes, so be it. If there's someone who finds that, you know, not me telling people this is what you need to know, but just sharing, I think that's what I would like to contribute is just share my excitement about it and hope that other people find it and think hey I like that artist a lot and I like that idea or wow it really caused me to think because at the end of the day that is what art is here to do is to make us think and be a reflection of what's going on around us absolutely and I think there's so there's a lot of discussion right now about how education is going to change because of COVID, after COVID. And with schools like Yale and Harvard and all of the big institutions, UCLA, Berkeley, going online for at least a semester, if not a full academic year, there's a lot of discussion about how that's going to change future programming are these schools going to allow more hybrid models are they going to incorporate more of these digital technologies and as we've seen as you've as you've stated the arts programming in the museums are starting to adapt and i think what's interesting about youtube and other social mediums such as tiktok or twitter even it's another place where information reaches further than the physical space that these people are held or where art is held. So originally in academia, the only way of working with said professor and having access to their work was to read their book, was to read their book or was to take their class. And get into the school where they taught. But now we have online programming and online courses and Twitter where we get to interact with them. We get to see their work and have access to that information. And I think what's interesting about this next generation of scholars and educators is that we have these mediums these applications, these websites, the software that we can actually use to expand the reach and 
the the gravity and the depth of the work that we're doing and have it have that information disseminate outward past past the ivory institutions yes and i i i think also the new generation coming up of scholars just us growing up completely in the digital age i think that will also just drastically shift things but it's now showing those who are a little older who didn't grow up with this who may have been resistant to it now they're finally seeing ah this is what it can do and i think it's going to help the younger generation who maybe haven't been listened to regarding technology i think it's really going to help um and i hope it continues because I know, like the other day, I listened to a webinar from a talk at a museum that originally was going to be in person. They weren't going to stream it online. And I know it was something I wanted to hear and that I would have never heard. And just that ability to have everyone around the world be able to listen into something is just very special. It's a very weird, weird moment. Um, but I'm so glad like we have Zoom now because Kaylin and I were able to write, she was able to write her dissertation. I was able to write my thesis over Zoom and she's in the Bay Area and I'm in LA and that wouldn't have been able to be possible before this. And it's very special. Yeah, I think it, there's a discussion about how it changes communication, but in addition to that, I think it also changes the work and the productivity and especially working from home. I mean, I cannot live without my Chloe Landis study <laughs> sessions. I cannot get my dissertation done. I am so used to working together. I'm so used to being in the room with someone else that working alone from home is very, very isolating. I'm not nearly as productive as I, as I normally would be. And so there's technologies like Zoom that make that possible. So now as we wrap up the episode, I want to ask, what is the best piece of advice you ever received? So someone shared with me the Eleanor Roosevelt quote, do you must do the thing that you think you cannot do. And I was told that quote, but they told me the more you are afraid of something, the more you should do it. And now not jumping off of a cliff, but the application that I think I don't want to get rejected from there. I could never get into that program. I'm not going to do it. The more it scares me, the more I have to say yes to it. Or someone saying, hey, we're nominating you to be the student speaker at UCLA Communities Welcome in front of 200 people. And that made me want to pass out. The, the more it scared me, the more I knew I had to do it and push through my fears. And I think, I know we've talked so much about this. We're both perfectionists and unfortunately a side effect of perfectionism can be um, procrastination and self-doubt. If you can't do it perfectly, then I may avoid it, you know, on the drastic end. And so setting, you know, a, a marker, okay, 
this really scares me. What is it going to hurt? Like, how badly will a rejection hurt, really? You know, if I don't try it, I'll never, you know, if I don't submit that application, I'll never get it. So pushing through fears, as terrifying as they are, and just submitting something, you know, sending an email to a contact that just seems absolutely out of this world that they would never respond I'm taking up too much of their time pushing through that and the more it scares me the more it means it's the right thing to do now that I I feel like I have to put the caveat not everything that scares everybody means they should do it but but in a general sense if it is a good thing if it is a positive thing I think if you're if you're if you're not doing something for fear of rejection. Yeah, that's a good way. That's a good clarification. I'm not telling anybody to jump off of a cliff because they're scared to do no. it. No, please, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> and how do you lift as you climb? How do you hope to inspire others? I think, as I said, similar to my why, just sharing the resources that help me get where I am to be me and be honest about my forthcomings and my failures and um, just be open to conversation, share what I've been given. And I hope that just me being me and seeing, hey, this person can do it will inspire people. Excellent. That's a similar goal to mine. <laughs> and now we have an exciting announcement for you all. So I have asked Chloe if she would be willing to become a semi-permanent co-host of the Lift As We Climb podcast. And she has agreed. So starting next week, we are going to be doing the what originally would have been solo episodes together. And including the interviews that we will continue to do and those will either be done in tandem we'll do them separately we are also going to be doing themed podcast episodes where we talk about all variety of things we're going to be talking about academia we're going to be talking about activism we're going to be talking about perfectionism and career pivots and moments of uncertainty so if you guys have any recommendations please feel free to dm the at lift as we climb podcast and let us know what questions you want answered what you would like to hear from us and i hope that you guys enjoyed this one thank you so much chloe for coming on this week thank you so much for having me and i cannot wait for you to be a rather permanent fixture on the podcast. I'm so excited. So excited to join you. All right, guys. So that's it for today. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week.